Okay. And can you say to me, the book is called blah, blah, blah? God, it's like getting blood out of a stone, isn't it? <laughs> the book is called, <laughs> I'll do it again. The book is called The Darkest Materials, and it's about the dark side of textile history and material culture. Wow. I think that's that Penelope Hemingway. She's a textile historian, and you may remember her from our last episode, the one about the Donner Party. She also has a book coming out. It's called Their Darkest Materials. And like today's podcast, it's full of murder, mayhem, and knitting. And I discovered that knitting a stocking in 19th century UK was a really dangerous occupation. Growing up, I consumed a steady diet of BBC corset dramas and Victorian novels. I've always had a fascination for the era, but especially the clothing. It's sumptuous and complicated with a thousand dressmaking details. But pull back that curtain of silk and embroidery, and you'll find something darker. You're listening to Fiber Nation. I'm your host, Alison Korleski. In this episode, we look at the darker side of fiber history with a surprising twist. Because in Victorian England, newspapers were filled with stories of murder victims, suspicious deaths, and tragic ends. And we'll learn why, at the heart of so many of those lurid stories, was a woman knitting. The words knitting and murder rarely appear in the same sentence, but that wasn't always the case. Today, I want to look at two separate murder mysteries in 19th century England. Two women killed in different cities, at different times, and with different motives. But in each crime, it was a hand-knit stocking that cracked the case. Our first story, The Eskrick Murder, is a tale of tawdry romance, domestic strife, and cold-blooded killing. It's also a story about sock knitting. It begins in 1841 in the sleepy Yorkshire village of Eskrick. The body of a farm wife named Ellen Taylor was found lying headfirst in her kitchen fireplace. Her torso and clothing were partially burnt, though her cap and a kerchief about her neck were intact. On the hearth beside her body was a bundle of keys she normally kept hidden in a pocket. A later examination of her body suggested she'd been strangled before being pushed into the fire. Several drawers in the house were open, but the locks hadn't been forced. The only things missing were some papers and a small amount of money. Other valuables, like silver plate, were untouched. And there was one more weird thing about the scene. Ellen was last seen sitting by that fireplace knitting. Yet when they found her body, there was no sign of her knitting anywhere. Suspicion immediately fell on Ellen's husband, Jonathan, and for good reason. As marriages go, Jonathan wasn't exactly a catch. Let's hop back a few years to 1838. Now, I should tell you a bit about Jonathan. He's... um. 60. He's quite portly. He wears an old-fashioned wig. It's 1841. Nobody wears wigs anymore. And he wears breeches. He doesn't wear trousers, which have have been fashionable for about 20 years. He's elderly. He's really old-fashioned. But he has a secret. He uh, has made a lady friend who lives in the notorious Black Horse Passage in York. Compared with the tiny village, the neighboring town of York was the big bad city. Jonathan was a regular patron of a seedy alley full of brothels and pubs called the Black Horse Passage. The whole place was the Victorian equivalent of a biker bar, and he met his mistress there sometime in 1838. We don't know her name. She's described simply as, quote, a woman of dissolute character. Dissolute or not, Jonathan was smitten enough that he left his family for her. 
To start a new life for himself and his mistress, Jonathan had helped himself to 600 guineas from his farm's estate. My back-of-the-envelope math is rough, but with the help of Google, I think that's close to $69,000 today. Back then, it was a lot. Bear in mind, most people earn about £20 a year at this point, £30 a year, so he's not a poor man. Jonathan and his wife Ellen were tenant farmers. They rented the land they farmed from the local lord. How could tenant farmers, even comfortably off ones like the tailors, have amassed such a fortune? Luck, probably, but also good business sense and constant hard work. And this is the background to understanding both murder stories in this episode. People in the Victorian era idolized hard work as long as someone else was doing it, preferably someone poor, imprisoned, widowed, or otherwise on the margins of society. And this reverence for labor, it was a tangible thing. You can still see it today, carved into the walls and town halls of cities all over England. A lot of British cities have, um, what are they called, mottos in Latin, virtute et industrium, which means virtue and industry. And like you often see in our um, coats of arms of cities and towns from the 19th century, this idea of labor and work being ennobling and important. The Victorians themselves are romanticizing labor and work and um, industrialization. I think we've all heard horror stories of child labor in Victorian England, but it wasn't just children, it was everyone below a certain class. Poor and working class adults and children both, servants, prisoners, tenant farmers in their households, everyone was expected to work their entire life in one way or another. Well, one is that you're in a factory and working in what's a manufacturing and you're in an industrial setting and you have the long hours and you might fall into horrible machines and dreadful things happen to you. Um, and and the other is that you work from home. And we tend to idealise that and see that as being roses round the door of the cottage. But in fact, everyone in the family might be pressed into doing labour so extreme that I actually found incidences where they were saying, we wish we'd worked in a factory because we wouldn't have to work these incredibly long hours. Penn goes on to describe an 1814 engraving by George Walker. You can see it on our show note page. It's the interior of this spare one-room cottage. A woman, a mother, is spinning at the great wheel. An elderly woman is winding the wool that she spins. And in the background, a small child is stirring something in a pot. It looks like a cozy domestic scene, until you realize the child is cooking so the older women can keep working. It's a tidied up scene of unending drudgery known as the piecework system of production. Piecework meant that clothiers, well-to-do merchants, would provide raw materials to poor women and then specify what they had to spin or knit or sew. Standards were high. Performance metrics are not a recent invention. Wool would be weighed before and after it was spun and if the merchants felt a woman was cheating them, maybe keeping wool or yarn for herself, or just doing substandard work, they could put her in jail, or at least seize the finished goods and not pay her at all. These women were paid by the finished piece, get it? But at very low prices. And this meant constant labor, just to make enough to eat. Now, families like the Taylors were considerably better off than people living on piecework. But as farmers, they had to work hard day in and day out, and the notion of work as virtue and no idle hands, those values would have been deeply ingrained. 
Which is why, when Ellen Taylor was last seen alive, sitting beside the kitchen hearth, she was busily knitting a blue woolen stocking. By 1841, Jonathan stolen guineas were long gone along with his mistress, and he returned home seemingly contrite. His family may have welcomed him back, but it wasn't a warm welcome by any means. He was allowed in the house, but that was about it. His wife and adult children had legally taken over the farm when he abandoned them, and they now made all the decisions about business and finances. Jonathan was given a small allowance, which he seems to mostly to have spent in the local pub. In October of that year, Ellen sold a small herd of cattle for 70 pounds. Jonathan had asked her for some of the money, and she refused. They quarreled, and she locked the cash in a drawer to which she held the only key. A few days later, Jonathan left very early in the morning. He said he was going to the nearby town of Selby for the day, though he wouldn't say for what. The rest of the family left around nine that morning to dig potatoes, leaving Ellen alone with her knitting. In the context of this podcast, no idle hands really means never not knitting. Even outside the piecework system, most working class women knit constantly. In fact, as a career path, learning how to knit was a no-brainer, and orphans or children of the poor were trained up to be production knitters from a very early age. We got some records from some of the York charity schools. I think they're fairly typical. And they expect a child to get into the knitting school to be able to knit a stocking in a week. That is not after they've been at the knitting school. That is to get through the doors. This is when I ask her, is, is all this virtue and industry and the devil finding work for idle hands, was this truly a righteous belief or more of a cynical ploy to squeeze as much labor out of people as possible? and make yourself feel good about it, like you're doing them a favor. I felt it was a bit of a justification, really, because you see lots of, I mean, tons of newspaper accounts of um, various villages or towns wanting to start a poor house and and all these schemes they think of to make laborers work in their downtime. They don't have a concept of downtime. Talking to Penn, it's clear those town officials don't have a concept of ethics either whatever their high-minded pieties about labor and character. Women's prisons, for example, were often just for-profit workhouses, and all the profits went to the wardens or the so-called charitable societies. An 1817 article in the London Morning Post talks about a certain Mrs. Fry and her program to, quote, improve the female prisoners of Newgate Prison. That program was to have these women sew 4,000 shirts, knit 220 pairs of stockings, and learn how to spin flax in three months. The newspaper praised the program, saying, quote, the amelioration of their morals has kept pace with their progress in the habits of industry. In other words, the harder each woman worked, the more she produced, the better she became as a person. 20 years later, Charles Dickens toured the same prison and noted approvingly that the women were always working at their knitting, even as they ate. In a society where useful labor was practically a moral imperative, Is it any wonder that Ellen, like any other farm wife of that time, would sew or knit every second she wasn't otherwise occupied? We don't know exactly what happened in that farmhouse kitchen that autumn morning. Penn's account and two others that I found all conflict a little or emphasize some details while leaving out others. One account says that a miller called on the house while the rest of the family was out digging those potatoes. According to the miller, it was Jonathan who opened the door, 
even though he later claimed he'd been in town all day. He wouldn't let the miller in and told him his wife was unavailable. Another account says their children came back around noon to discover their mother's body. In that account, Jonathan shows up a few hours later. They tell him what happened, and he doesn't seem all that upset. Uh, it must have been a fit, he says, where she fell unconscious into the fire. He tells them she suffered from headaches, though no one ever heard her complain. It's pretty safe to say that no one believed him, but there's no real proof. Except for that blue stocking Ellen had been knitting. Or rather, that missing blue stocking. There was no trace of it in the kitchen or in the fire. Wool is flame-proof, but even if it had burnt, the metal needles would have survived. It's only days later that they find the stocking, bundled up and shoved to the back of a high shelf. Ellen's daughter described the stocking as raffled, meaning it had started to come undone. And if you're a knitter, you know that is not something you let happen. The likeliest scenario is that Jonathan confronted his wife over the money he wanted. Maybe he always meant to kill her and his trip into town was an alibi. Maybe he just came home early and they had a fight. Either way, he strangled her, took her keys, and opened the drawer. Except the money was already gone. She'd given it to her son a few days ago, without Jonathan's knowledge. Panicking and still penniless, he pushed his wife's body into the fire along with her keys. Maybe he hoped to burn any evidence or thought people would believe she'd fallen in by accident somehow. The stocking? Presumably he just grabbed it in his panic. He probably didn't even realize what it was, just stuffed it on the shelf without thinking. To Ellen's daughter, it was unthinkable that Ellen would be found without her knitting beside her. And it was unthinkable to her, or to any knitter today, that she'd put her knitting away when it was such a hot mess. Either way, on evidence of a half-knit stocking, Jonathan was tried, found guilty, and hanged. Jonathan wasn't the only murderer convinced by what seems to be the most random clue ever. Knitted stockings were a surprisingly common theme in murder cases. And so often they become evidence in court cases because the stocking will be in an unexpected place or it won't look how it should look or it's found in the, something, a knitted item's found in the murderer's house. Stockings, it seems, left their footprints everywhere, including the basement steps of a dark and squalid boarding house in 1831. Join us after this break to hear about another case. This time, it's not the absence of a knitted stocking that solves the crime, but its presence. Coming up, the London Birking murder. Okay, so we're about to talk about grave robbing and body snatching and cold-blooded killing. But before we get there, I need to give you some more context about the importance of clothing to our story. While this episode focuses on two specific murders, there were other kinds of deaths where clothing, especially knitting, had an important role. Read a newspaper from the early 1800s and it seems like bodies were popping up all over the place. Identifying those bodies wasn't always easy. Modern policing was just beginning to develop. Photography was still in the future. Forensic science wouldn't exist for another hundred years or so. But what we call crowdsourcing today was very much a thing as newspapers would give detailed descriptions of these bodies in the hopes that someone would recognize someone and come forward. These descriptions tended to focus on clothing and personal effects. This was particularly true along England's waterways. 
Bodies in the water were called found drowns, and they were surprisingly common. While some were suicides, most found drowns were rivermen or bargemen, and they were usually identified by what they wore, the traditional knitted gansey or fisherman's sweater. I first got interested in this when I was researching river ganses, and we found that in newspapers there were often good descriptions of ganses when somebody was found drowned, which, of course, mariners often are. But the reason for that is quite pragmatic, because in the days before refrigeration, they're going to have to get the body in the ground. And there's another grosser reason the Gansey sweater was often the key to identifying drowning victims. If a body is in the water for a while, the face is probably unrecognizable. A sturdy Gansey, though, hand-knit with heavy worsted spun yarn, that thing will stop a bullet. It's impervious to pretty much anything, even being submerged for a long time. And forget about sweaters being knit with specific patterns to indicate a man's village or family in case he drowns. That's just a knitting myth. But if someone is missing, and a newspaper account of a body describes a blue and white gansey with twisted ribbing and so forth, that might spark recognition. So they go to the newspaper and say, we found this person at such and such a village in the river, and this is what he or she was wearing. And then hopefully someone will read the newspaper and come forward, and that's their main way of identifying people. So the clothing is detailed for a reason, because it's actually pragmatic. They're trying to find out who that person was. And this loops us back to our main story. Knitted clothing could not only help identify a body, it could prove a person had been murdered when there was no body to identify as in the case of the London Birking murder. If you don't know what Birking is, before we continue, I need to take yet another little detour and tell you a bit about the art of grave robbing. Edinburgh in the 1800s was a leading center for anatomical study, but to study anatomy, you need bodies. At that time, only cadavers from prisoners or suicides could be used for medical research, and as you can imagine, demand soon outstripped supply. This led to a thriving black market in bodies. Grave robbers, or resurrectionists as they were called, became so common that mort safes, these iron cages around a coffin, were used to discourage them. In 1828, William Hare and William Burke became game changers for the resurrection industry. William Hare kept a rooming house in Edinburgh. When one of his lodgers died, he saw it as a business opportunity and sold the body for dissection. When another lodger became ill, both William Hare and William Burke seized opportunity and killed her, smothering her in her bed. You see, a sick person in a rooming house is bad for business, but a dead person, smuggled out in the laundry cart, is very good for their other, newer business of anatomical specimens. Overall, Burke and Hare are supposed to have murdered 16 people in a 10-month span. Today, to burke someone is to murder them with the intent of selling their corpse. Now that you know what burking is, let's jump forward a few years and travel south a few hundred miles to 1831 London. We're at another rooming house, this one occupied briefly by a woman named Carolyn Walsh. Now the London burking case is just a few years after the famous burke and hair case. Caroline Walsh is an elderly Irish lady, she's in her 80s and she's a peddler in the streets of London. In 1831, she vanishes. As an aside, I'd like to point out that Carolyn is 80. She has a family, but is still scratching a living by selling ribbons and dress trims, possibly making some herself. Again, no idle hands. According to Penn and other accounts I found, a couple named Elizabeth and Edward Cook, or sometimes Eliza Ross, newspapers refer to her by both names. 
Anyway, Elizabeth Eliza Cook Ross, she ran a boarding house with Edward and had repeatedly pressured the elderly woman to come live with them. Carolyn eventually relented, only to disappear the next day. The cook's 11-year-old son was to testify that he'd seen his mother leaning over Carolyn as she lay on the basement floor, and that he'd later seen his mother leaving the house, carrying something large and heavy in a sack. This sounds pretty damning and also really creepy, but he was just a little boy, and how can you prove murder if there's no body? The cooks insisted that Caroline had left that morning, taking all her belongings with her. Once again, a knitted stocking becomes key evidence. You see, the cooks weren't content with selling Carolyn Wash's body. They planned on selling her clothing as well. Even the clothes are taken off her back. So what they do is, we, there was a thriving second-hand business in clothing. Um, so they're selling her body, but they're selling her clothing separately. And all these people that have vanished in London, their clothing turns up in this basement. The way Penn describes it, this couple's basement looked like something out of hoarders, with clothing and other effects piled to the ceiling. Authorities estimated that the cooks had been murdering people for 10 years. Since it might look suspicious if they sold a lot of clothing at once, they had apparently held on to things. In hindsight, probably a little too long. Penn tells me that London had this flourishing business community of what were called slop shops, stores that sold secondhand garments. In our time of fast fashion and practically disposable clothing, this seems alien to us. But as the name slop shop suggests, clothing was quite literally worn to bits, patched and resold until it was truly rags. Fun fact, Penn tells me that linen garments, especially underthings that got really grotty, were eventually turned into paper. I want to make a second point here. Remember the culture of labor and how women were constantly knitting every minute they weren't doing something else? If you do something long enough, you get very intimate with it. You recognize details, things other people wouldn't. You begin to see that each knitter has a signature. Maybe it's the particular heel they put on a sock or a type of edging. Maybe it's something less tangible, like the way you recognize someone at a distance just by the way they walk. Caroline's granddaughter had stopped by the cooks more than once, looking for her grandmother. On one of these visits, she saw some random knitted things draped over a chair, and these included a pair of stockings that she recognized belonging to Caroline. As both the slop shops and the cook's basement show, clothing was precious and not discarded lightly. If Caroline had left the house, why had she left behind one of her few pair of stockings? The granddaughter's evidence is key because granddaughter says, not only do I recognize those stockings, I knitted them. And I think all of us that knit or do any sort of handiwork, we know we would recognize our own work, wouldn't we? Ironically, as a hanged felon, Elizabeth's body ended up on the same dissecting table as Carolyn. Clothing, bodies, murder. The connection may be morbid, but it's also important. Because in this episode, as I tried to connect the dots between two murder cases, I discovered that those dots outlined something as well, something I wasn't expecting. I always knew that 19th century Britain had some pretty ugly realities behind its flash and glam. Any era does, including our own. But I'd always thought of Victorian ugly as factories, mechanization, maybe lead and arsenic poisoning or opium dens. I didn't think of sewing or knitting. 
All those charming prints of women stitching? That was just some genteel hobby, wasn't it? Not really. As Penn says, I discovered that knitting a stocking in 19th century UK was a really dangerous occupation. Somebody said to me, that's just like carrying a mobile phone. Now, you'd have your knitting on you all the time and you'd always be knitting something workaday like a stocking. So the odds are, if you're going to be murdered, <laughs> suddenly, in the 19th century England, and you're a woman of a certain class, certainly, you, you'll have a stocking in your hand. <laughs> I wanted to do an episode about knitting and true crime. But I saw another story as well, a larger story. A story where people were worked from childhood on, as long as there was light to see. Where a woman not knitting was a woman not working, and for that reason, practically unimaginable. Those lavish costume dramas I so love, I always saw gorgeous clothes, but I never saw the hands that made them. We're very romantic, and this certainly opened my eyes researching this book. Um, I mean, I never look at any of those Jane Austeny type things in the same light ever again. <laughs> you sort of know, even when you see people wearing beautiful outfits, you're thinking, how was that made? And don't forget women like Carolyn Walsh, who had to work even after their death, in a way, on the tables of medical students. For all my morbid relish in this episode, there's also a lingering sadness for these women. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of exhausted. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much for listening to Fiber Nation. You can find more information about today's episode on our show notes page. Just look for the link in the episode description. If you haven't already subscribed, find us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you like what you hear, please take time to leave a review. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Alison Korleski. Our consulting producer is Ron Doyle. Our audio engineer and editor is Ted Mitchell. And our executive producer of podcast is Jared Mayer. 